Hi, and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, members of our family support group share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics through interviews, sharing their stories, and more. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone who is listening. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am here to interview Amanda for our series, Hope for the Family. Amanda, if you don't mind first introducing yourself and giving a little bit of background on what led you to be in a family support situation to begin with. Okay, so hi everyone, I'm Amanda. Um, I have been a person in family recovery and and all the ways that that works itself out for about 11 years now. And I landed here for for lots of reasons. Um, What ultimately got me here was the last um, relationship prior to recovery. I ended up in a relationship with someone who had a meth addiction um, that I thought I could manage, but I think as I began to understand recovery, the dynamics, the disease, I think that my entire life I've been qualified to be in a family program. And that's what, I guess that's what led me here. I mean, do you want like the specifics? (laughs) You know, I think it would be awesome for our listeners to get Mm -hmm. to know you personally a little bit better. And so if you want to talk a little bit about like your personal story, um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. All right. That'd be okay. I'm a native Texan and a native Dallas side on top of that. But with that being said, I also spent the first few years of my life kind of traversing back and forth between Monterey, Mexico and Oak Cliff, which is the community that I grew up in. I have three siblings, an older brother, two younger sisters, My parents were married and divorced each other uh, five times. Um, I felt like each time they um, got divorced, they would have kids. And so that's just kind of how that happened. And um, their last divorce, um, I was raised. It's kind of weird to tell because sometimes you can only look in hindsight and understand the dynamic of what was occurring, especially as a child, right? As a child, you're just I I was keenly aware I was in chaos, even before I think I knew what chaos was. It just never felt right. Um, But um, I, my parents' last divorce, I think I was 11, 12 years old and, and I don't have exact numbers and I don't spend time figuring it out. It's just not something that I'm personally interested in investing time in, but um, it was junior high. So whatever those ranges are. And um, the family dynamics really switched then. Uh, For years, my parents had been in and out of um, religion. You know, there was a specific religion that they were associated with. I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. That, um, and I think that a lot of people that are looking for healing um, go that route. I mean, I certainly did. Even myself, as I began to be an adult, I did 
what I had been told my whole life, which is faith will save you, you know, and things along those lines. So I don't think that that's unique to my parents or, or to me. I think a lot of us use religion um, for a way to find some ease, get out of the pain. I did for sure. <laughs> yeah, I did. And uh, so I would say after the last divorce, you know, I watched my mom for a while, really tried to make it work. You know, she was a single mom with four kids. We were, we, we were living in uh, what I would certainly say was poverty. I didn't know it was poverty, right? But we were certainly living in poverty. You know, everyone around me was just like me. So it didn't look any different. And uh, I would watch her work two and three jobs to try to make ends meet and manage kids and all that stuff. And, and I could see it getting to her. And then enters, um, you know, she dated some nice guys in between then, but, you know, very shortly into that enters a guy who um, is still in prison today, you know, for activities, but it began um, my awareness of uh, drug addiction, right? Um, and, And my immediate family and anything prior to that, uh, I wasn't aware of. I was, like I said, 11, 12, 13 years old. I don't think that I had the wherewithal to understand that the dynamics in our world quickly shifted. Our home quickly became the drug home, um, right? It quickly became the place where, I mean, our home, like, <laughs> I laugh because I have to, but like, I literally have memories of twice of like DEA agents coming from all sides, like my neighbors, you know, like they, it was a, it was a planned event, definitely, right? Um, You know, I I remember these things. I left that world um, at a very young age, decided I wasn't going to be like that. You know, I I was in it for a while, even when I left the the family world, you know, I didn't go to one much better. But I would say I was in the the world of addiction and alcoholism um, for a lot of years in, in different ways, in repeated relationships, just my, everybody I knew was that way. So I didn't know um, anything different, but I did decide at a young age that I was going to be different. And I began to kind of um, leave that world. Uh, I was going to have a different life. You know, I was better than them in my mind. And um, I got married um, and I thought that that was going to fix everything. I thought it would change everything. I wanted family. I wanted love. I wanted companionship. Looking back, I can see that that was, you know, um, I think that's a pretty normal want and need. But I think for someone who hasn't really experienced it in kind of their everyday life with that type of stability, you know, I think a lot of kids of alcoholics look to just about anyone to love them. And uh, in the marriage, I, um, he was not an, an alcoholic or an addict. He was actually a very even keel person. Uh, my family was still up and running. My two sisters have um, battled addiction since very, very, very young ages and my mother too. And um, so I was very wrapped up in saving them and making sure that they were okay. I, and again, look, looking back, right, was very uncomfortable towards the end of my marriage. I was accustomed to a type of love that was very chaotic, 
And um, I think like, as the big book says, we're, we're in a state of excitement, right? There was a lot of excitement in my life and I didn't know what to do with the boring. I didn't know what to do with the mundane. I didn't know what to do with the three children that I had, right? I didn't, you know, understand how to um, create the life that I wanted, but I was living it. And then I think that the pressure of trying to please everyone and be all things to all people um, just got to be too much for me. And uh, I met a nifty little guy <laughs> and I laughed because I don't want to cry about it, but um, who is the one that eventually forced me to find something different um, in, in life. It got to be very chaotic. I left my relationship. I began a relationship with him. You know, his addiction got worse. I didn't know anything about it, but I assumed, hey, it can't be that bad. You know, as long as he's not doing heroin, it won't be that bad, right? And um, it did get bad, right? It, it got very bad. And, and one of the things that I think were the hardest for me is that I wasn't going to be like my mom and kind of expose those elements to my children, but I absolutely was exposing those elements to my children, the violence, the drugs, the chaos. And one day I was trying to get him some help because <laughs> I believed that if he got okay, that everything would be okay. Looking back, I can see the, the majority of my life. I believe that if people did what I thought they should do, then I would be okay. Um, but I genuinely believe that if, you know, he got sober, there was genuine love between he and I, I can't deny that at all. But I believe that if he got sober, that everything would be okay. Um, and he never got sober and I couldn't continue in that space. And so I was going to take him to sober living and he didn't want to go and I couldn't continue. And I met a woman and she blatantly asked me, do I want to be okay? And I remember in probably not the nicest words, you know, asking to, you know, responding, how can I be okay? Um, do you not see what's going on? You know, this is falling apart. And these people that I love are falling apart. And, um, I didn't see a way out. So that's kind of how I got here. I don't know if that's what you want to hear or. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, gosh, I have so many things I want to ask you. Okay. But I, I never know where to start. Um, First, I just want to say that, you know, uh, Next Step participants, they, I don't know if you know what Next Step is. You probably don't. It's the outpatient program for Maggie's. As one of the assignments, they had to listen to Hope for the Family to hear the family member's perspective. And I had so many of them tell me how much they identified with Lauren and just her thoughts, you know, and her actions. And so it was such a good teaching opportunity to talk about like that spiritual malady piece and like self, you know, is a problem and how self manifests in various ways. And I just think of how, you know, I too thought like marriage was going to fix me. You know, I have that experience and I actually had an affair and left him for somebody named cocaine Carter. So you and I have that in common. That sounds, that sounds hot to me. It certainly <laughs> did back then. Right. Oh, it was such a mess, but I, I, um, that's actually the one that I texted you about after I okay. listened to the story. So I think one of the important things to talk about that I want to make sure we get in is you were, you grew up with a mother who exposed you to 
the drug world and drug addiction and had that boyfriend and all of that stuff. And then you then had in a relationship. And so were your boys exposed to the drug world or to addiction? Um, well, my boys are still exposed to addiction. Okay. And my sons are um, young adults and, and almost adults um, now. And so, yes, um, I think I always believed him when he said he wasn't bringing it home. I think there was a part of me that knew that that wasn't true, but I always believed him. And I don't know if it's because I wanted to believe him or because I didn't know how to face the reality that I knew was present. I was so in fear. You know, when you and I were talking the other day, my biggest fear for years in the program um, was the alone fear. I didn't want to be alone. And, and for the codependent, for this kind of codependent, that is a big thing because our entire identity is external as opposed to being internal identity. So if I'm alone, then what is my identity, right? My identity was worthless or undesirable or unloved. And it didn't matter if it was cocaine Carter, right? Or Obama, President Obama, you know, it could have been anyone, but if I didn't have that external identity to validate my reality, it was terrifying. And I think that I allowed things to happen that I certainly wouldn't allow today, but I didn't know how to um, deal with them. I didn't even know, I didn't even know, right? Like until I began to heal, did I understand that the fears were that powerful? And it wasn't like I did my fifth step or, you know, I had a couple therapy sessions and boom, that was healed. Um, because some of those fears are pretty deep rooted in our identity. And so, or in my identity, it took a while, but yeah, there was absolutely moments that my kids would be in situations that to this day, it still makes me sick to my stomach, but I allowed that to happen. You know, um, I would load him up in the car because he hadn't been home for a couple of days, right? And it's two or three o'clock in the morning and we're going to go find him. Right. And, you know, I don't think meth was his drug of choice. That was the ending drug. I think all the drugs were involved. So sometimes you could disappear to a crack house for three or four days. You know, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit this outwardly, but I was the woman that would take her small children in the car at two o'clock in the morning. So are my kids exposed? Absolutely. Are my kids today aware have people in our lives that are still suffering from the disease? And do I try to teach compassion with boundaries? Absolutely. You know, do I try to teach them that they're still perfect, perfect um, examples of creation, whether I don't understand it or not? Absolutely. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but. I do want to ask you, what would you, like, what would you want to tell the mothers who are involved with a, an active drug addict or alcoholic that are also like dragging their kids through it. What would you want to, what would you want to say to them? I have a lot that I would say to that. As a matter of fact, it's kind of where I focus a lot of like in my private practice, even now, um, you know, as a kid, you know, you and I talked about this, right? I carried a lot of shame that wasn't mine. I carried a lot of blame that wasn't mine. 
I was constantly worried. Um, and I told you, I told myself the whole day, I'm not going to get emotional, but here we go. I was constantly worried as a child that my mom was going to die because she was always sick, right? Sick, sick, sick. She's constantly sick. And so I had two, my two younger sisters. And so I developed that caregiver-ness at a very young age, which carries through. You know, it's my job to carry care for people, to mom people, to put my needs aside as an 11, 12, 13, 15 year old, um, to care, my sisters were younger than me, right? Um, you know, to care for other people. And then I think, you know, my mom was very abusive now I can see that there was somebody who was probably in physical withdrawal or just the depression and anxiety of addiction, just that uncomfortableness. But if we were making too much noise, there was yelling, there was screaming, you know, it was the constant walking on eggshells that we hear about, right? And as a child, you don't understand that because you're already scared to death that they're going to die because they're so sick. Because they're certainly not going to the bathroom to say, I'm going in here to shoot up. They're going in here to shoot up, but they're sick. So can you leave me alone for a little bit? You know, 30, 45 minutes later, you wonder if they're alive in there or hours later, right? Um, don't know what you're going to do. So I think that when I, when I talk to these young moms who believe, one, that their kids aren't impacted, your kids are impacted, right? I'm a 46 year old woman who's recovered from this stuff, but it still stings when you think about it um, because it, you have to go through all of that to heal from it. And, it. and then when you think that you're shielding them. So for example, let's say, you know, you and I were married and you were the one in the bathroom and I'm the codependent partner that's enabling the behavior you know, the kids know something's still going on, right? And then we've got two people saying parent is sick, two people validating a false reality that intuitively we know something's not right. And so we distrust ourselves, right? We growing up thinking that we're wrong, that what we feel and see and know is not true. One of the things that I would say was most powerful about doing the steps as you know how it talks about, we get to a point where we no longer know the true from the false. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that he had drugs in my home, but I didn't know he had drugs in my home. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? You know, but you don't know, but you know, but you don't know. And it's just a hell place to be in. And I think to rob a child of that ability to trust themselves, which is the one thing as adults we need more than, I mean, that's our best survival tool, right? if not the, the only survival tool that we can really utilize internally, you know, we can go get jobs, we can go whatever, right? But if I don't trust myself and I don't know whether to take this step or this step or date this person or not date this person or to trust the instinct about if I'm being lied to or, you know, it, it's just a, it's a lot for kids, you know, in, in my practice, I treat a lot of kids. <laughs> Um, whose parents are 
and battling addiction, their anxiety is through the roof, right? Their eating disorders are through the roof. Their um, ability, the heartbreak they experience when they realize they've been lied to all these years, right? They're, they're angry. You know, one of the things that I, I struggle with most with the, the enabling partner is what I'm telling them, tell the truth. Your children deserve to know. You know, you don't have to be like, hey, dad or mom is in the bathroom sticking a needle in their arm or, you know, they're at the bar. However, we would say it in a resentful way. But, but let your children know because they know anyway. And if we don't give them a story, they're going to make up one in their head, um, you know, and Lord only knows what that's going to come up like. But, you know, giving people an opportunity, everyone I think deserves to have their truth validated, right? Especially when it's being violated at such extreme degrees. You know, to the young ladies that are dating people that are actively using and, you know, there's nothing better than the love of an, <laughs> an addict or an alcoholic. I will say that all day long. Um, it's passionate. It's so considerate and loving. You know, it's that true Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and when like you'll hear people say all the time, when it's good, it's good. And when it's not good, it's not good. And I, I try to suggest that if the person is genuine about sobriety and genuine about the relationship, then they'll do what's necessary to keep that going. Um, <clears throat> but do not subject yourself or to your children to it, to, for them to have an opportunity, you know, like let them go figure it out. Um, and that's really hard, hard to do. Um, so how were you able to, cause I'm sure you had a lot of regret by exposing your children and taking them in the car and all that. How, how did you heal from that? And how did you let go of the shame? Or do you still have shame? Well, I mean, I both, right? Sometimes I, I, I certainly have regret. Um, you know, I, I hold on to what the book says about, you know, the past is going to be our greatest asset, right? I can take my you know, I, you, you brought this up and I said, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I am, you know, I have a specific memory of one time physical abuse occurring in my five-year-old walking down the stairs, like, you know, he was going to keep his mom safe. And that was a pivotal moment for me. He doesn't have a memory of that. You know, I've never asked him blatantly, you know, do you remember this? But I'm like, do you ever remember us arguing? You know, do you remember your lightsaber? Cause he came down with his little lightsaber, you know, his little star Wars lightsaber. And and he doesn't have a clue. And, and maybe someday I always wonder like, what if my kids run across these? <laughs> you know what I mean? Are they going to be like, cause I know things about my mom now that I didn't know then, you know, that you, you, you're just like, oh, wow. Um, but I, I wish I didn't have that memory and experience, but I do and I can't change it. Um, I'm really lucky that my kids didn't get harmed as some kids do, you know? Um, I, uh, my kids live in a home of divorce and all the chaos that comes with that as a result of my choices. Um, you know, mine were still very young when I found recovery. Um, I'm really, really thankful for that. Uh, so I was able to negate, you know, some of that damage. But at the same time, I mean, you don't do steps one through 12 in a month and you're instantly well, you're just awake, 
you have to learn to live, you know, you have to learn, I mean, to be present. I would say it took me years to just stop the wondering. I, I could be physically at a baseball game with my kids and have no clue what was going on because I was so wondering, what are they doing? Even if I were not acting at that point, right? Like I had to physically remove myself from my drug for lack of a better term. So as I'm detoxing for lack of a better term from the drug of choice, another human being, um, and I'm not actively using the drug of choice, I'm thinking about it all the time. Or, <laughs> you know, the first year of recovery, I would set, you know, pages of the big book open all over the place, thinking that I was going to get like, you know, white picket fence recovery. Um, and eventually they would come around and I, I even had to understand that I believed God owed me that, right? Like that if I got sober, then God was going to get everybody sober around me and sober emotionally for me, right? But then he was going to literally sober up and bring recovery into my world. And that's 11 years and that still hasn't happened. But a couple of years into my recovery, I resented the hell out of this so-called higher power because, you know, I've been doing all this hard work. Why are you not fixing my people yet? Was life getting better? Yeah. You know, were, were things moving, but I don't, and those are hard things, right? It's, it's, it's not as simple as, okay, I put the bear down and I'm not drunk today, but are you present? It's not as simple as I broke up with the person, but am I present, right? You know, am I obsessing in my mind? Because the fear of alone is the worst thing that I could have imagined at the time. It meant the worst of worst for me. And, and Lord only knows what version of childhood hell created that. I can go back, I mean, as a professional now and be like, okay, there's all kinds of attachment wounds and all these things. Either way, as a 35, 40 year woman, I'm still having to figure them out, right? And I'm having to figure them out while I'm trying to parent people and go to work and live and learn to be a whole human being, you know? Um, and you know, you and I talked about this and I do sometimes think that this is important for the family member to hear is that I resent <laughs> that I don't get to say I was drunk for 10 years or I was high for 10 years, right? Well, what was wrong with you? Why were you acting those ways? Why were you doing those things? Nobody ever talks about the impact of addiction on the family. You know, when I'm working with people in my private practice or, or even in, in recovery, you know, I always try to start separating the addict from the, the chemical or the sex, porn, Carmex, whatever, right? Alcohol, drugs. Um, and I tell them to, to imagine it's like an octopus, right? Like the body of the octopus is the addiction and the little tentacles, they're gonna to touch everything. Um, and we have to figure out all the different ways that that's touched us. It's gonna to touch us behaviorally, emotionally, mentally, you know, physically, right? Those are four ways right there. And we have to get all those little tentacles off of us um, to be able to heal. So I don't know, I feel like I'm babbling and. I love, love, love that you said, like being at physically being at your son's baseball game, but not mentally being there because you're mm -hmm. obsessing about where he's at and what he's doing, because I can certainly relate to that. And I'm sure that plenty of people who are listening can relate to that. You know, one of the things that I 
because you know I listened to your story um and before I even met you and one of the things that I remember you talking about is is the amends process and I would imagine that because whenever alcoholics first come into the rooms we're completely delusional and until we're awake like you just talked about and so I would imagine that that can be the same way for the family member so I guess what I'm asking is, I think talking about the amends and the harms that you cause is so important because it would be so easy to say, I'm not the problem. I didn't do this. He's the one who's drinking. So he's the one causing the harm. So do you mind just talking about that? Yeah. And we did talk about this a little bit, you know, and I tell this to whether they're in my practice or I'm in recovery or coaching with them. Um, If... I think that the first year of recovery is the hardest. And if it's really sticking, you will mourn what you did, right? It's a grieving process. You're allowing one piece, one person has to die for another person to emerge this internal shift, right? Um, And when we talk about my behaviors, oh my God, I was so holier than thou, right? Like uh, just, I knew what everybody needed to do. I knew how they should do it. You know, if, Uh, I mean, what got me to meet the woman who was my sponsor is I'm dragging a person to treatment who thought we were going to lunch. Not, not, nobody ever once asked me to help them. And my words could be deadly. You know, something that I tell all the families that I work with is it's really important that we're very deadly to them. I mean, flat out deadly. We can't control their drinking. But if we know that they don't have tools to help them handle emotion that their tool is to, to use. Okay. Whatever that is. And I'm putting the weight of my emotions on somebody who can't even handle the weight of their emotions. How selfish of me. Now, did I know all that stuff? Did I understand that about the disease? Absolutely not. Did I understand? And you and I talked about this and I think that this is important because I did drugs. You talked about, that, you know, um, I am fortunately one of the people that I could get up and walk away and I haven't done drugs in 20 years, um, more than 20 years, but you know, when it was over, it was over, right? It was time to go home, right? It's Monday morning. I got to go to work. And that doesn't happen for the true addict, right? With that being my perspective, every person who was, was unable to just stop was weak, right? They just didn't want to, you were choosing that. As a child, I don't think that there's anything you will ever be able to tell a child. There's no amount of education that they will believe until they get old enough to understand that it's not a choice. You know, that they, that mom or dad is not grandma, grandpa, whoever, right, is not choosing that over them. Um, and so with that going forward, man, my anger was through the roof, right? All I was doing for them, all the bills I paid for people all the treatment that I, you know, helped provide (laughs) that nobody asked for, you know, all the things that I had done for you, I felt entitled me to some say over your life. Um, And when you let me down, I I remember Michael, I would punish him. Like when he would go on a binge and I wouldn't see him for days, um, I would punish him for days and he would sit there and take it and I look back and I'm like you know if I'm working with couples right now I'm like you're choosing to take it back 
smile and nod. You know what I mean? Forgive, grace, all those good things that you preach on this side of the window, we really have to enact on this side of the window. And I don't know if people know how hard that can be, right? There is nothing scarier for a codependent than your loved one being a couple of weeks sober and you're just waiting for the other shoe to fall, whatever that saying is, or the, the rug to come out from underneath you again, because you want to believe, you want to believe, you want to believe. And your fear, if you're an untreated family member is growing, your antsiness is growing. If they're not working a program, their desire to use is growing, right? This white knuckling sobriety is only going to last so long before one of us is going to push the other one off the cliff. You know, they could be trying their best. <laughs> I remember one time he was at work, he was trying, he was doing his best. He was coming home late for dinner. And in my mind, I had him already at the crack house getting high. He was 15 minutes late. And by the time he walked in, I was pissed off. You know, the fear of relapse was so powerful in me that as soon as he walked in the door, I'm yelling, screaming, you know, bringing up stuff that's not even real because I can't tell the truth from the false anymore because that fear is so powerful to me because I need them to be sober. I can't be okay if they're not sober, you know? Um, and I would say mean things. Well, eventually, hell, if I'm going to be treated this way, I might as well go ahead and use, I might as well go ahead and drink. Um, what's the point of trying if this is the way that I'm going to be treated? I hear that constantly from the families that I'm working with, from the one that is using, you know, um, again, it makes the other person, the other people responsible. If that's their delusion, right? That if the wife would just hush up, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 you're sober because you want to be or because some people want you to be right. Um, but I think about just, you know, how I was mean and I didn't know I was mean. That's the part that just made me sick to my stomach, right? I was very unkind and unloving. And it never once occurred to me how much pain they were in. You know, with my clients, I get a piece of paper and I'll put a black circle in the middle of it. And I tell them that that black circle is the addiction and the whole piece of paper is their loved one. But that one little black circle is the addiction. And that's all you can see is that little black, green, red circle, whatever on that paper. But we're so hyper-focused that I can't see wow, they're really funny and wow, they're really talented. Or on the flip side of it, I am determined to get them to live up to their potential, right? It is my job alone. God created me to make sure you live up to your potential, you know? And these young women that are dating guys that are in love with potential, let it go manifest and come back if it's meant to be right? It's not your job, you know, nor do you have the ability um, to get somebody else to manifest their potential. Um, but I was a, a very unkind person. And I would have told you that I was the kindest, most self-sacrificing person um, you'd ever met, right? I, I, I'd give you anything you want, but it came with a lot of conditions. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you mind, did you make amends to the ex? Did you have to make an amends to him? The one I was married to or to the one we're talking oh, about? The one that your, your qualifier. Yeah, I made amends to him. Mm -hmm. and, um, in jail. He was in jail when I went to go see him in jail. Mm -hmm. really? And was that 
after you guys had split up or during? So that was really, to me, serendipitous. Um, <laughs> I liked to put on a good show for people. It was important to me, right? Like, I'm that actor. I have my stage character. So on Sundays, there was a couple churches here in my community, and I would look up the sermons for the week prior and decide which one he needed to hear, and that's the church we would go to. <laughs> yeah, very, very kind of me, wasn't it? It was very loving of me. You know, I wanted to save their soul. But, you know, we were going to church one day, and I always looked beautiful, and I had my little stiletto shoes on, and we were fighting the whole way there. I mean, just screaming, yelling, name-calling. That was our normal um, we get to church, we smile, we nod, we shake everybody's hand, you know, praise the Lord. I always use my little dear voice, praise the Lord. And, um, I remember standing there digging my heel into his shoe, right? Like he was doing something I didn't like. Um, and I think it was the first time I had genuinely prayed in a long time. Um, and I'm not religious to this day. I'm super spiritual, but I'm certainly not religious. Um, and um, I was like, God, I, I, I need a, an answer. I mean, you know, I always was looking for signs, right? God, give me my sign. And um, I was like, I can't keep doing this. And when I came home that day, he said he was going to go get cigarettes or something. And I knew he was not going to come back. I knew it was binge time. And I knew that I was done, meaning he can't come back home. And there was just enough strength in me to do that. And he never did come back home. Now, did we see each other? Yeah. Was that the same time that I would say like two or three months later is when I met who was my first sponsor? Um, you know, did I listen to her once I got through the steps and she'd be like, don't talk to him <laughs> or maybe you should be focusing on your children tonight, you know, or maybe you should do this. I was unable to, be as honest as I am today. And who knows if in 10 years, I'll look back and realize there's levels of honesty. At that moment, I was as honest as I could be. So I don't like it in recovery when people are saying you're being dishonest. Well, I was as honest as I was capable, genuinely capable of being, you know, if you're blatantly lying, I'll call you on it. But if you're trying your best, and you just don't know that that's a whole different reality, but he never came back. He got worse. Eventually I got better. So there was just a natural, you know, gravitation. Years later, I went and made amends to him um, in jail. I don't think that he thought I owed him an amends for anything in the world. I don't know if that's where you were going with it, but yeah, I made amends to him. I made amends to his brothers, to his, I made, I mean, my resentment list was, I don't know, 20, 30 pages. I think I made amends to Dallas, Fort Worth. <laughs> Um, he's still not sober, correct? And mm -hmm. your sisters aren't, aren't sober. Do you mind talking about your relationship with them today? There was a couple things that we, that you said on how like you, sh like you show up for them are like things that maybe you've, you've done that maybe people don't understand. So do you just mind talking about like your relationship with them and what that looks like? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, when you have addiction in your family, there's ups and downs, right? I, I always hope that someday they find recovery. But in this, the flip side, I have to accept that today there isn't recovery. You know, that today what I have is this sister and this sister. 
and this sister might be doing this and this sister might be doing this and they may be sober today and not sober tomorrow, right? Or they may be on Suboxone or Methadone. It is, but there's never been recovery. And I try, and it took me a while, but I work really hard to just meet them where they're at. Now, I have a lot of boundaries, like, and I hate this because they don't understand it, um, but I don't let them in my home a lot. You know, it's just sometimes not a wise decision. Do I wish we had family Christmas and, <laughs> you know, family Thanksgivings and things like that, but that's just, I have three other kids that are going to be more important. Their experience is more important to me than the extended family experience now, for lack of a better term, or family of origin. You know, there's there's times, um, sometimes are the efforts better than others, but I love them right where they're at. I don't I don't talk to them about getting well, right? I don't talk to them about their choices. I don't preach to them anymore. You know, there's times where they'll bring up my recovery and what do you know about all this? And, you know, sometimes they want to knock recovery in 12 steps and it's old fashioned and okay, some people feel that way, right? It's done a world of good for me, you know, and there's been times that they've needed a place to live and I haven't let them in my home and they don't understand that. And um, it's created barriers, like it's created resentment on their side to me. And, and I hate it too, but it just, it is what it is. The dynamics of a relationship with an addict are very tricky, right? You never know what's sincere. <laughs> you never know when you're being taken advantage of. Everything has a negative slant, it seems. And I just had to get real secure in who I was, what my limits were, and, and where I was, where I was, and where they were. You know, sometimes, you know, there was years, it, they don't even ask for money anymore. But every now and then, you know, one sister will be like, hey, can you help with methadone or something like that? And every now and then, well, why wouldn't I help my sister do that? Not all the time right? I'm not her methadone dispensary ATM person, but hell, there's been times in my recovery, I could have used an extra 60 or 80 bucks or, or something like that. You know what I mean? And if she's trying, I'm going to support that every step of the way. I also, and we talked about this and I hope this doesn't, you know, cross any lines with you. Um, but I'm a big fan of, you know, they're going to find their path to recovery. And it's, it might not look the way I think it should look, you know, and I think a lot of family members get hung up on that. You know, their, their path to recovery might include a year of methadone and a year of suboxone and a year of weed maintenance and a year of this. But I think if they're getting better and they're working and they're interacting in life again, right. And they're not, who am I to say, what I get to say is what I'm going to do and what goes on in my home and what my boundaries are. Um, I love my sisters with all my heart. It just sucks the realities, not only of their continued addiction, but the damage that was done being raised by an addict. Just the complete lack of trust. Um, knowing how to be siblings, knowing how to love um, without motive, without chaos, without agenda. You know, there's that old nature versus nurture, right? If you grow up believing that a relationship is tit for tat, then that's all you know, right? You don't know anything about doing for the, the, the 
benefit of doing. You certainly don't know how to receive without taking or demanding um, or even feeling entitled for what you receive. So it's just weird. I don't know if that, again, answered your question or not, but. You know, I know you said that that a lot of people didn't understand why you wouldn't let your sister stay and you had a, an empty room. You know, my, my family had no problem telling me that I couldn't stay there. And at the time I was so resentful and angry, like my, like at my, my own mother, right. Wouldn't let me stay in her home. And now I look back and I'm just so grateful for that because like, I don't know if I would have gotten in the rooms as quick as I did, had I not all been allowed that opportunity to crash so hard, <laughs> so quickly to the ground. Another thing that you, that you mentioned, what I think is also important for our family members to hear that I think is so great is you said, like, if you, if you have an appointment or a meeting with your sisters and they don't show up, like you don't take that personally. Oh yeah. No, no. Um, yeah. So do you mind like just explaining that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of times where I, I love the idea of sisters. I think I told you this, like I, my brain is so stinking romantical. Like I feel like I should be like in some Thomas Kincaid picture, but I, I have those fantasies of pedicures with my sisters or shopping, you know, or I, I don't even know where you go have tea, but tea with your, you know, whatever stupid crap is rolling around in my head. Um, coming to my kids' birthday parties. Um, coming to my son's graduations. And if they don't show up, that's okay. You know, I'm not going to call and shame them. I know that they're probably doing a good enough job of that on their own, right? They're not horrible, uncaring people. They're people that are controlled by their addiction. And that addiction is more powerful than anything else in them. Um, and it took me a long time to learn that. Amazing it is that you're able to recognize that because, I mean, I think so many people would take that stuff personally and think that they're choosing to hurt them or something. But so did that take going through the steps in recovery to recognize? It, it took me learning to love. You know, I want to say, I, I, I tell people all the time that I think that if we're lucky enough to have an addict or an alcoholic in your home, that if we are also then blessed enough to have the introduction of recovery, that we get our own personal angel because we're genuinely going to get to learn how to love. And unconditional love means that I'm going to love you because you're alive, right? Means I have to learn what my expectations are. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting my sisters to be there. Who, who wouldn't? right? Who, who wouldn't want to go meet their sisters and do all that stuff, right? And, you know, come throw graduation parties with me, come be the auntie, right? Um, my sons don't have that experience. And, and for a long time, I was resentful. I punished them for those things. And I made amends for that. Um, how, how is somebody who's so sick from heroin addiction and, and physically and pain, which I don't understand, I don't know, never experienced it, never felt it in my life, don't even have a point of comparison. How am I gonna ask them to come over here and light candles and scoop ice cream for 30 bratty little children? 
<laughs> Hell, I barely want to do it for mine, let alone the other little bratty ones that are there <laughs> that, you know, because of my codependency, I'm doing probably just to put on the show versus actually making a good time. But it took me a long time to understand that every piece of their heart wanted to be there. One of my sisters will make, and, and let me phrase this very carefully. I don't go to the doctor with her. In my mind, I'm a little dismissive sometimes of what I'm being told. I feel like it, it breaks my heart that my sisters may have to say, oh, I've got A, B, or C going on to kind of cover the reason they didn't attend mm -hmm. versus feeling comfortable enough to just say, man, I'm an addict. You know, I'm not going to be there. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I wish we could have that type of dialogue where it's not a punitive language, but just it is what it is. I, I think that that's pie in the sky type thinking, right? Um, because of the delusion of addiction, you can't admit it, you know? Um, and so, you know, and, and I make sure that my sons understand, hey, they're just sick. This is what, this has nothing to do with you. Um, you know, almost always my boys will get a card in the mail and it'll be the most beautifully expressive, heartfelt card you know, and I've tried, and they're boys, they get kept two shits about stuff like that. You know what I mean? But I try to make sure that my boys are aware that this is love. Somebody went out of their way to do something for you, you know, but I wish that those things were there. If they show up, I always love it. Like I had a Christmas Eve two years ago and one of my sisters showed up and I loved it. And she was there. And, you know, I used to be, this is something that was really hard. I used to be so ashamed of them. And I would allow people not to say anything, but to like throw low key shade at them. And I swear to God, if one of these bougie women around me right now threw low key shade at my sisters, you know, it's going to be some hood rat coming towards the <laughs> because if they're invited to my home and in my space, then you mind your P's and Q's. If they're not stealing from your purse, mind your business, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and I think about how, it must have felt to them for me to be ashamed of them, of their addiction, of what an embarrassment they were to me versus, and I didn't know, how could I know how much pain they were in? I didn't know how to look at it that way. I, I remember the first time I had an ounce of forgiveness, the idea of forgiveness for my mother um, came in an AA at primary purpose group at one of the AA foundation meetings. And a guy was talking about, he had his daughter with him. It was Sunday. You couldn't buy anything. He didn't want to drink. He was begging and praying God. She just wanted a dad that didn't have anything to drink that day. He really didn't want to drink and ended up going to the drugstore and getting three or four bottles of NyQuil and downing them. Um, because he, he couldn't stop himself. And it was the first time that I had ever thought maybe they don't have a choice because see, my experience was I can walk away, right? My, my personal experience is then just stop, get up and go to work tomorrow, right? Just quit. Um, now I couldn't do that with people. <laughs> you know, I did not quite have that ability. Um, Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up because I wanted to also talk to you about too how like you didn't ex experience the physical allergy and the phenomenon of craving for the 
the drug, but you did experience a phenomenon of craving for the human. Can you explain what that looks like? So I can explain what it looks like for me. Yes. I can. I mean, it, it, it is that when they're in jail, I say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer the phone. Right. And maybe the first time I don't, but then the entire time, are they going to know that I love them? What if they're getting beaten in jail? Okay. This time they said it was going to be different. You know, who, if I don't believe in them, who's going to believe in them? Okay. What if people find out my sisters, my person, my friend is in jail? How is that going to look towards me? So that phenomenon of craving, that obsession, right? Whatever, however we want to do it. It can look a lot of different ways. And so I bail them out of jail, right? I don't have any money, but I'm pawning something. I am signing a car title loan to bail them out from a bail bondsman, which they skipped bail last time, right? Um, and they're leaving me in bad situations over and over. I'm paying their bills before I'm paying my bills. Um, I would leave my young sons. This is before the chaos got really bad in my own personal world. This is when I was still married. To go rescue my sisters anytime they called. Or my mom at the time. She was alive then. Um, the constant lying to the self that I can handle this. I can do this. I don't know if I'm answering it well or not. It, it manifests um, for me in, in a myriad of ways, but it basically boils down to every step of the way I ignored the truth that I knew was inside of me. You know, I can totally relate to that. You know, I told you that my son's father, I met him in recovery and he ended up relapsing. And it was so much like I knew he was using, but I, but I didn't know he was using just like you were saying. And it wasn't until hindsight whenever blew up in my face you know that like it was there was no denying it that I was like I felt so much shame and, and regret because I should have listened to my intuition and, and I was ignoring my intuition so. well and I took on a like a mom role in my mind for my sisters even though I turned my back physically my mind had this very attached parental role and and even with women that I work with you know as moms whose kids are perhaps out using our job is to make sure y'all are okay y'all being the kid my job is to make sure you get through college or you're not doing this and then how much of my identity is wrapped up in it well am I a shitty mother because my kid's an addict you know am I a horrible person because my kid's an addict what are people and this is the part that gets really this is where the rubber meets the road is when 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 for some of us in a fifth step, we realize that we're more worried about what the world thinks of us than we are our child's addiction. It doesn't mean you don't care. I care, but I care how it makes me look. I care how it makes me feel. I care how it's impacting me. I'm not not thinking about you, but I'm not thinking about you. And I think that that's a pretty common thread for families in recovery, you know? Um, I don't think that we know that. I think that that's why recovery is so important on the family side, because if, I don't know, we can send our loved ones off to the best rehabs all day long and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if they come back home to that sick environment where there's no support, no change, my favorite quote, 
you know, page 117 in the big book, we urge you to try our program for nothing is going to be so beneficial to your loved one as the changed attitude God is going to show you how to have, right? If I don't know how to set boundaries, if I don't know how to not ask them to meet my emotional, emotional needs, it's, I don't really have the right to ask anybody to meet my emotional needs. I didn't know that. And I certainly don't have the right to ask a very sick human being, you know, like I tell my kids that I'm working with, I tell my wives, my husbands, your partner may not look like it. Your parent may not look like it. They are in ICU. And would you ask somebody in ICU to do some of the things that you're asking your loved one to do? Um, but I think that those are, sometimes our realizations are really hard and, and it's not easy to get to. Like, you know, I'm not sticking a needle in my arm or drinking myself to death. I don't have a tangible, you know, item. I, I only have the gift of other women sharing their story that I could be like, ooh, that stung a little too much, right? Because I'm not the one that's wrong. I have a job, I'm paying my bills, I'm taking care of my kids. And that's a very loose term. You know, I'm taking care of your bills. I'm making sure you have a job. I'm doing A, B, C, D, and E, right? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. As women, we're, we're, we're expected to be the caregivers of the world. Um, and if we don't, then our identity is in question at a whole other level on top of that, you know? And so to kind of pause and have to take back myself, I don't even know what the hell that meant. Who, who was I? You know, all I was, was the person trying to save everybody around me who nobody was asking me to save, you know? You know, whenever you were talking, I was thinking, and you also said this in your story, um, that you weren't going to be a statistic. Um, and so I was thinking like, what if there's somebody listening who, that's all they know. And they, they grew up around that. And so they think, how are they going to get out? How are they going to get better? What would you, what would you say to them? Does that make sense? What I'm asking? Like from my perspective, mm -hmm. like on the family side. Yeah. And I would tell them to, to go through the steps and I did them quickly. I did them as they are outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which gives very specific information um, I'm not trying to be controversial, but a lot of Al-Anon programs don't utilize the big book for their own reasons, but they do say that we recover by working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the place that holds the information of how to do this step work is in that book. And it uses words like next, immediately, let's go, keep going, pick up the phone and call somebody, you know, <laughs> I would absolutely encourage somebody to take their recovery as serious as you want your loved one to take their recovery. You know, like if, if I have a partner that's complaining that their other partner didn't go to a meeting and I'm like, well, did you, right? When was your last meeting? When's the last time you called your sponsor, right? Because I don't think that it, one, does it give us empathy about how hard it is to actually work a program sometimes and, and all that we're asking them to do but it starts saving our butt, I would encourage you to find a strong Al-Anon group that is talking about the solution, um, what the steps are, how to get well. I would educate myself as much as I could about the disease. 
I, I would, there's a lot of mental health experts out there that can point you in some really powerful directions on how the family, you know, can recover. You can type in family drug addiction recovery, family alcohol recovery, and you'll find tons of information. You're going to have to know who you are to live in that world, you know, and that's a process of trial and error. I'm going to have to know what my boundary is. Well, my sponsor told me something years ago that my yes needs to be my yes and my no needs to be my no. Okay. I couldn't do that as a mom and I certainly couldn't do it as a person. Um, you know, it took any time my sisters would call and needed money. I gave it to them. Even if I knew they were going to buy drugs with it. Right. I would cry myself to sleep thinking, what if that $20 is the $20 that causes them to OD, but I couldn't tell them. No, I had to give them the $20. Um, and I would say the first six months to a year of constantly telling them, no, you know, I got name called. I'm an asshole. I'm selfish. You know, you got money. You're greedy. I'm all these things. But it took me a minute to even say no, because I had to be ready to say no. And then I had to begin to understand I'm not greedy. I'm not selfish. I'm not holier than thou. Because I would let those words impact me. Right. I would let them define me with their words. Um, and so I would say, get surrounded by people that have walked this path. Um, so that way you can survive some of the hard blows that are going to come because they're going to come. Um, that's the best advice I could give. If you need some therapy and you have access to it, there's a lot of people in the world that don't have access to it. Get it. If you can get it, you know, get it. Um, you know, be specific about it. There's a great book called Codependent No More. Go through it. See where you're doing it. There's tons of podcasts and free information out there, just like this, that people can tune into. Uh, what is it? Recoveryaudio.org or something like that. There's tons of Al-Anon speakers where you can hear their stories and begin to identify all the ways that addiction of any type, you know, sticks its tentacles into our lives. What do you think? What do you think that the family needs to know from the addict's perspective? I mean, aside from quit, you know, enabling me, but what, let me specifically ask you, what do you want the family to know about how to love an addict? Well, this is something that I was going to say okay. um, that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is the hardest thing that you can do. Um, and so I hate saying this on the podcast because we might have some active alcoholics who are really mad at me by saying this, but like, I'm so grateful that my family did not let me in their home and my family did like not give me money. And they didn't like, they didn't help me in any way at all, actually. And at the time I was very, very, very angry. And I would do all of the things that your sisters did to you. I remember one time I went to, they, my mom allowed me to come to our house for a barbecue. I, at this time I didn't have, I didn't have my daughter. Um, she was living with her dad in Texas and she was going and the only way that I was allowed to see my daughter it would be under my mom's supervision. So she was going to let me come over there for a little bit just to see my daughter, but I couldn't spend the night. 
And, uh, and she was like five years old and I was like snuggling with her on the couch and I was so happy to see her. And she was asking, mommy, can you please stay the night? And I asked my mom and my mom said, no. And I got in her face and I screamed at her. And I think I may have even tried to hit her. And I remember my daughter like clinging on to me, like screaming, crying as my mom is carrying her away. And I'm just causing the biggest scene being like, that's my child, you know, all of this stuff. And it's only today that I know that all of that stuff was to protect my daughter and to protect my family and to ultimately it helped me get better faster. And so I guess what I would say is it's okay if they hate you right now. (laughs) It's okay if they say you're the worst person ever, they name call you, if they try to hit you, whatever the case may be, because when they get better, if they get better and they get on the other side, they're gonna see that it was all done with love. At least that's my experience. You know, I think that's beautiful. And those are hard moments, right? Yes. For the, for the family side, who's experienced that, you know, and you're, we're sitting here wondering, like, do you not see that you're causing your own daughter more pain? Because when you were talking about, you were snuggling and your daughter asked if you could spend the night as I was making up your reality, as you were speaking it, <laughs> you know, I was like, I bet you looked at her and said, no, because grandma's an asshole and she won't let me, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what we, that's, that's the reality. Right. And then as the family, and I know that these are the hard things to talk about, right? You've had your experience and, and I've not personally had that, but I've worked with lots of women and families that have that grandma me, I'm pretending to be grandma. Now I have to go home with your kid and pick up the pieces, right? And try to soothe their heart and try to provide some normalcy and try to undo whatever story they're hearing. Or maybe now that kid does hate me because I'm trying to keep them safe from you. And sometimes as the family, especially the older, I get more brave in my recovery. Like I say things that a lot of people probably like, Ooh, you shouldn't. But sometimes why not? It needs to be said, right? Like if you know, if you don't have custody of your kid, there's a reason. Don't add to the pain that child's already experiencing. Is it comfortable? No. Do we all, does anybody want to be in that situation? No. How much more selfish can you be to add to your kids? Right. And I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that because I'm sure that there are women right now that are, you know, on the alcoholic side, and I'm not saying any of this to hurt anybody, right? But on this side, we have to go back home and deal with it. We haven't even thought about because we don't see that side. Mm-mm. So I think it's so important to say that. I think it's super important. I mean, unbelievably important to say, right? Because this is the reality of a lot of people, especially like Maggie's. You know, Maggie's is a transitional place, which means who knows what was before. This is what we're working on today with the hope that, that tomorrow is going to be different, right? And there's all forms of, and I'm not saying this disrespectfully, but all forms of dysfunction walking in those doors. And if we can create a language around it to remove some of the shame, to remove some of the stigma, to remove some of the sting 
of the anger, which is just the hurt that's, that's manifesting, right? For whose ever choices, you know? There, there's some moms that I've worked with that their daughter's smoking weed and she's like, I'm gonna call CPS. I'm like, please God, don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> but if they're making meth in the bathroom, hey, you do what you gotta do. The kid's kind of innocent, but are you willing to take the kid in, right? There's a lot of times too. I tell my poor kids, and God, I hope that I don't actually have to ever experience this, but I'm like, y'all ever decide to go down this road? CPS going to take your kids. I'm like, mom, you would let CPS do it? I'd be like, you would let CPS do it, you know? Um, but like, if we don't create a dialogue for this, right? Like if we don't at some point, even prior to recovery, maybe help people that are still out there understand these people nine times out of 10 are doing the best they can. Now there's some shady ones out there. I get that, right? There's some very sick people on all the fronts, you know, um, that maybe are not even giving a person who's trying to recover an opportunity to have those choices back. Maybe the relationship's so damaged that it won't come back. But I think it's important for the person who stumbled across this conversation, who's never walked into a room, who's checking it out, who doesn't know anything about recovery, who may or may not have their kids here, you know, everybody's doing it from love. So let's keep the love front and center. Grandma is trying to love the kid. Kid wants to love everybody. But I think that it's important to have um, those conversations. And I don't think there's anything, you know, I've talked to some of these moms that have had to pull the grandchild away from their child. Oh my gosh, see, that's another thing that we wouldn't have even thought about is the pain that that causes just for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, this is a horrible disease, right? Yeah. It, there's nothing good about it. I mean, you know, and I told you this and I'm, you know, I created a whole community for the family. So the family can have a place to talk about the hell that we experience, right? It's super easy for my sisters to be sitting at a restaurant and I'm homeless and my sister has an empty bedroom and she won't give me a place to live for the world to look at me like I'm evil, right? It's super easy for me to be sitting at the pedicure place talking about, you know, my junkie family, right? And I, they, that every time they come in, they steal. And what we don't talk about is how much I'm starved for the love of those two girls, of my mom, of the friends, because I didn't know anything different. So most of the people I grew up with were addicts and alcoholics, of all the people that I love that are alcoholics and addicts, right? And I'm starved for their love. We never talk about that, you know? Um, it's, it's so sad. It doesn't have to be, right? It can. I don't know, I tell my people all the time, you can find a place, because that's the goal on the family side. I love that you're recovered. I may never get recovery people, you know? There's a lot of women, husbands, whatever, kids listening to this, they never ne may never get their person recovered right? But their life can be okay. Just like you deserve life, the family deserves life too. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that's a perfect ending quote, don't you think? Well, it's your thing. I'm just here. I hope I was able to help in any way. Oh, I think this was so good. I think if nothing else, I just took away so much from the other side of that experience. And I think 
me personally, that's going to help because I sponsor a lot of moms, you know, and that's going to help me be more effective as a sponsor and help more women. So I'm just super grateful. And like, I'm super grateful for doing this because I think both, I think an Al-Anon can benefit from hearing an alcoholic and an alcoholic can benefit from hearing an Al-Anon. And
thank you. So yes, much. thank you, Stephanie. This was wonderful. Um, I think you are absolutely amazing. So thank you. Thanks, thank you. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.